Good morning. I trust you guys are with us at Psalm 95 already. It feels awkward introducing my own passage again. (laughs) But if you would, if you haven't already turned there, go to Psalm 95. And uh, this is where we're going to be this morning for our sermon. Uh, Again, maybe if you're coming in or are new, uh, my name is Devin Coleman. I was the pastoral intern. Now I'm the North Parish Director of CPC. So it's kind of exciting. So this is my first Sunday being able to share that with y'all and riding solo. So, <laughs> so appreciate it. But there's a word from God this morning. Would you turn to Psalm 95? And uh, before we hear from God's word, let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us so that, uh, Lord, we might come to know you and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And so, Lord, I ask now that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wondrous things out of your law this morning. Would you truly give us life according to your word? And as for myself, Lord, I pray uh, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, Uh, Lord, let them be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and you are my redeemer. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Psalm 95. This is God's word. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, may God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. I'd like to preach simply this morning on the subject, uh, a call to worship the king. This psalm is a call to worship the king. And to open us up, i like to start with uh, an illustration from a DC film. Uh, yeah, I'm a DC films guy. That's a confession. I think they're actually pretty good. You can throw stones at me later after service. But at the end of the movie Aquaman... I think that's one of the better ones. But at the end of the movie Aquaman, uh, there's the main character, Arthur Curry, uh, a.k.a. the Aquaman, and he beats his brother, the villain of the movie, Ocean Master, in a battle for the throne of Atlantis and the Seven Seas. And so they have like this epic duel. He's like spinning the trident, and there's like water flying everywhere, and then it's like, like stopping in the air like in space, and it looks really, really cool. And they're like fighting, they're, du- they're duking it out, And, of course, Aquaman wins. He wins the duel. And after he wins, 
he kind of wins the allegiance of everybody in the seven seas. And there's like a perfect scene uh, in, that, in that movie. And they all kind of gather together. You can kind of, it's like the camera pans out. And you see there's like each of the seven uh, nations or kingdoms of the, the oceans. And they all gather together. And they cry out, hail to the king. Hail to the king. And they do it like five more times. Hail to the king. Hail to the king. And it's a pretty epic moment. And I was thinking about it in relation to this psalm, uh, that, that, that what they were doing, the cry that they were, they were giving was actually a shout, not only of affirmation from the people to Arthur, you know, claiming him as their new king, but it was also a cry of praise, right? The king, or their king now, had proven himself to be mighty in battle, and they were praising him because of it. And so in using this phrase, they were giving him the honor and the glory that was due to him. They were extolling him. And you see this phrase used not only in Aquaman, but actually it's used in many movies that are kingly related, that relate to kings and kingdoms. You have that one scene where the king wins and everybody's like, hell to the king. And then not only that, I'm quite sure the phrase itself probably was used historically like in the praise and in veneration of kings throughout history. But nonetheless, it's a phrase used in the praising and the adoration of a powerful royal figure. And it's usually done by a mass of people. It's usually done by a great crowd, a great congregation. And so in today's text, in Psalm 95, we see where the psalmist is calling for God's people to worship him as their great king. And indeed, as God is far greater than any fictional or any historical king, right, God alone deserves our highest praise. And so if I can set the context a little bit, uh, the psalm was likely used on the Sabbath day in congregational worship during the time of the first temple. The psalm itself, in the first half, it calls for God's people to worship and to sing praises to him. And then in the second half, it calls for God's people to listen and to be obedient to his voice. So you kind of see it breaking into those two parts. And specifically in the second half, in calling God's people to obedience, it draws from this Old Testament example of the Israelites' disobedience in the wilderness. And so you can see all of this at work in this psalm. But overall, the psalm makes one thing plain. And that is this. As our great king, God is to be worshipped and obeyed. As our great king, God is to be worshipped and obeyed. One commentator says of this psalm, he says, This psalm was to be sung with the holy reverence of God's majesty and also a dread of his justice. A holy reverence of God's majesty, but also a dread of of his justice. And so since the text divides into two parts, I want to outline the sermon under two parts. And I'm going to borrow from my Aquaman phrase there. So the first part being, let us hail the king. And then the second part, let us hear his voice. So let's look now firstly at let us hail the king. So this is from verses one through seven. The point is clear throughout the first seven verses that all people, but especially God's people, are called to worship and to praise him. In verse 1, we see the phrase, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Then in verse 2, we see the phrase, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. 
Let us make a joyful noise to him with the songs of praise. And then verse 6, we see, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. So it's clear, abundantly clear, that God calls his people to worship and to praise him, right? But then the question arises, well, how? What kind of attitude is God's people or are God's people to worship him, worship him with? What attitude are we to worship God? With what attitude are we to come and to worship him? And he says in verses one and two, a certain phrase, he says, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. And then again in verse two, he says, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And I think we can gather from here that our praises to God should be full of joy and thanksgiving. After all, right, it's, this is God that we're talking about. This is our Savior. The psalmist calls him the rock of our salvation. So this is not a mere mortal king or someone like ourselves, but this is God Almighty that we're speaking about. It's not like this is just even our favorite football team or basketball team. And you know, you don't necessarily really have to worship. You don't know you shouldn't worship them, but you definitely don't necessarily have to praise them with thanksgiving, right? You can go to a USC football game and be like, I'm here, I'm going to do the sandstorm, but I'm just going to complain the entire time. And yet, the psalmist tells us that God is always and at all times worthy of our best praise. That he's to be worshipped with joy and with thanksgiving. Not a mere emotionalism, but with true joy and with thanksgiving. And I think the congregation and the priests of Israel were not, I think they knew that they were not to worship God on the Sabbath day with dread or out of sense of mere duty, right? But with gladness. And uh, I think Charles Spurgeon actually drives the point home uh, when he says, commenting on this, this psalm, and specifically these first two verses, he says, there must be, there should be joy in our worship. He says, to worship as if it were a mere duty. I'm just doing my job. I'm getting out of bed Sunday. I'm coming to church because it's my job, and I'm going to sing, but I'm going to complain again the whole time. <laughs> But to worship as if it were a mere duty, Spurgeon says, would be but the reverence of slaves before one who is dreaded. He says, but to worship with delight, he says, this is the adoration of children who come to the one whom they love. You see, our worship of God should be with joy and out of love for him, not as slaves. For in the New Testament, Paul tells the Galatians concerning their relationship with God in light of the gospel, he says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And that you and I are no longer slaves, but we are sons. And if sons, then heirs through God in Jesus Christ. You see, we worship God joyfully as his beloved children. And then you might ask the other question. So we, the psalmist tells us how, but then why? And that might seem, you know, a little irreverent to ask that question, why? But the psalmist doesn't hesitate. He doesn't shy away. He says, you want reasons as to why you ought to worship God. I'm going to give them to you. So in verses 3 through 7, the psalmist just doesn't tell us how. He gives us reasons why. And so... The first thing that he says, it's a simple one, but I actually love it. He says, God is great. 
Did y'all catch it? Verse 3, he says what? For the Lord, Yahweh, is a what? A great God. God is great, the psalmist says. It's a simple truth, but it's so profound. It's almost like he's, he's grasping for words here, and he's, he wants to communicate to us. God isn't just good, but he's great. Like, the God who we worship is actually in a league all by himself. Like, he is on a completely different level of existence, a completely different plane of existence. He stands above us as the creator to the creature. There is no one like this God we worship. But then that's not all. The other reason he gives is he says, and this one can, can kind of be a little tricky, so we're going to slow down and walk through this one. But he says, we should hail God as king. We should worship the king, give praises to him, because he is above all other gods. And now we look at that and we're like, wait a minute. All other gods? What, what, what is the psalmist trying to, what is he trying to say here? And various commentators have their opinions. Some say the whole gods in lowercase is a reference to the kings in the ancient Near East, or like civil magistrates or the governors, inasmuch as they ruled and they governed. Sometimes they can be called, quote-unquote, little gods, not like real gods, but just kind of a, like a, a nomenclature that they would give to, to kings. Then some say it's a reference to the angelic hosts. Because sometimes in the Old Testament, they're referenced as the sons of God. But then you have some that are more so the, the theologically uh, liberal side of things that say this is actually the Old Testament affirming a weak form of polytheism. Or they would call the technical term a hemotheism, that there are many gods that actually do exist, but there's just one that we would claim and worship to be like the king, the Mac Daddy God. Think like uh, Zeus, Poseidon, Hades. Like they're all real, but Zeus is the king and the gods, that sort of thing. But we know that's not the case. For one, that actually defeats the purpose of this verse in its immediate context, right? By saying that God is a great king above all gods, the psalmist is acknowledging that God is in fact sovereign over these so-called gods, and if he's sovereign over these so-called gods, then therefore they actually aren't really gods at all, because the definition of being God is being the sovereign, the absolute. It doesn't even make sense to have multiple sovereigns. That makes no sense, at least not in the writer of the psalmist. But then not only that, we have the testimony of other scriptures, right? Scripture interpreting scripture. Isaiah 46, 9 says, I am God, I am the Lord, there is no other. Period. So rather actually than affirming polytheism or a weak form of polytheism, this verse actually serves as like a polemic, like an Old Testament polemic actually against the nations and their false idols, that there actually are no other gods and that Yahweh actually rules over all the fake gods that people actually can make for themselves. Think about Elijah's showdown, right, in uh, 1 Kings 18 with the prophets of Baal. What happens there? They call out, they cry out to their quote-unquote gods. They cry out to Baal. They're like, nothing's happening. Then they start cutting themselves. They're bleeding all over the place. And they're like, come, come, come. And nothing happens. And Elijah kind of jokes with him. He's like, well, maybe he's just asleep. And then he goes even worse. This is like a low blow. Then he says, well, maybe he's relieving himself and he just can't come to the phone right now. 
And nonetheless, we see that these pictures that that we are given in the Old Testament actually show us that God himself is the one true God and he's greater than all the false gods of the people of Israel in their day and the false idols in Elijah's day and still he's far greater than the idols that we make for ourselves in our hearts today. For God is still a great king over money He's a great king over sex. He's a great king over power. He's a great king over fame. He's a great king over politics. He's greater than all of the idols that human beings set up in their hearts today. And he deserves our worship. He alone, not them. But then there's not the only reason, right? So the psalmist just keeps pounding us and giving us reason after reason after reason. And then yet another reason he comes to we see in verses four, five, and six specifically, is that God is the creator and ruler of all things. Look there. It says in verse four, it says, in his hand are the depths of the earth. Then it says, the heights of the mountains are his also. It says, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. And then he says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And so I want you to take a moment and imagine the deepest and the highest places on earth. Just try to picture that and picture them placed in the palm of somebody's hand. Like, think about that. Try to wrap your mind around this. So I guess for us, it would be the the Marianas Trench. I think that's still the deepest part that we know about, possibly, But then you've got the Himalayas, which I think we know still to be like the highest places on earth. So think about the Marianas Trench on one hand, the Himalayas on the other hand, and imagine God sitting there with both in the palms of his hands. And you think about that and you're like, that is not only mind-blowing, but then when you think further than that, He not only holds them, but he holds entire galaxies in the palms of his hand. He rules and he reigns over the entire universe that he has made. And not only did he make that out there, but he also made everything in here, including us. The psalmist says, he says, for the Lord is our maker. And this is my favorite part. He says, not only is he our maker, but then he says, and he is our God. Did y'all catch that? That he is our God. God. Notice how the psalmist is picking up on both the transcendence, but then also the eminence of God. That yes, he is the great and awesome creator of all things who holds the depths of the sea and the heights of the heavens in his hands. So yes, he is that kind of a God. He's high and lifted up and yet he's also pleased to condescend and to dwell with and to enter into a relationship with his people that is so intimate that we can actually call him this great and glorious God, our God. Like that's, that is amazing That the Lord of heaven and earth nevertheless saw fit to come and to enter into a covenant relationship with his people. For verse 7 says, says, he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Y'all, how wonderful it is that this great king who rules over all, has entered into an intimate relationship with the people that he has called to himself. And just as Israel 
God's people of old had the pleasure of singing this psalm out of all the other nations, guess what? We too today, as God's covenant people under the new covenant of grace, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we of, of all people in the world can take this psalm upon our lips. We can call him our God. That God, yes, he's the God of all, but especially of those whom he has called to himself in Jesus Christ. Y'all, that is a, a privilege. It was a privilege to be able to sing those songs this morning. It was a privilege to be able to come and to worship and to pray and to do a confession of sin and to hear the assurance of forgiveness and to hear those song, the words of those songs like, plastered over us and washed over us. That was a great privilege to be able to come and to do that this morning. Yes, God is the God of all, but he's especially the God of those of us who believe. And that is really good news. And yet, the psalmist isn't quite done because he says, as his special people, that means we ought to give him our special obedience. Because we are his special people, we ought to give him a joyful obedience. And this brings me to the second part, let us hear his voice. So if the first half of the psalm was let us hail the king, the second half of the psalm is let us hear his voice. And let's look there at verses 7 through 11. So we'll do verses 7 through 10 first and then we'll hold off on 11. But he says in verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, verse 9, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, in verse 10, for 40 years, he says, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So as the congregation of Israel sang this psalm, they would surely have remembered what happened to their ancestors during their days in the wilderness. You guys know the story as well about the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, God delivering them through Moses, and yet they rebel in the wilderness. And I think the reason the psalmist includes this in this part of the psalm is because he wants to make something abundantly clear, and that is this. He wants them to know that any worship without obedience is ultimately hypocrisy. That any worship without obedience is hypocrisy. And so, hence the need, he says, to hear his voice. We need to hear God's voice. And you're probably wondering, what does he mean by hear his voice? Like, does he mean like hear him speaking like audibly? And I think in this context, it's safe to say that hearing means listening, listening and being obedient. So listening and then responding in obedience. If I can give an example really quick. I remember I was a little boy and I would be doing something I had no business doing. Like I'm running in the house. My mom was like, Devin, you need to stop running. And I'm still just running back and forth. And she's like, I thought I told you to stop running. And so that's the second time. And then the third time, it's uh, Devin Coleman. And I'm like, and she's like, did you hear me? And it's like in that moment, I know she's not asking me do I hear her audibly because she's clearly screaming so I can hear what she's saying. But what she's really doing is she's 
calling me to listen and to actually be obedient. She wants me to hear her in obedience. And so likewise, when God calls the people to hear his voice, he's calling them to be obedient. And he says, and this call is an urgent one. This isn't a call that you can just throw off and say, God, I hear you speaking, but I'll, I'll get back to you tomorrow. He says, no, 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 today, if you hear his voice, if you hear my voice, he says, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. He says, do not harden your hearts. And what I thought was interesting, fast forward to the New Testament here, so hang with me. The writer of Hebrews, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, he tells us that this verse in Psalm 95, so in chapter 4 of Hebrews, he tells us that this verse not only applied to the Israelites at Meribah and Massa, by the way, I think those might be references to the same place, I'm not sure, but in the story of Exodus, he says it not only applies to them, he says, but the today in this verse actually refers to even God's people now under the new covenant of grace in the time of the gospel. So one commentator says the expression today, he says, is not to be confined to the time when the law was given with Moses, but properly applies even now to the gospel when God began to speak even more clearly. Which means, and the implication of that, is that means that you and I are also under the obligation to hear God's voice. We are under the obligation to hear God's voice. Whether you think so or not is, is besides the point, it's besides the question. Whether you and I think so or not, the Bible says that we are under God's authority and we will have to give an answer to him. And so, the psalmist issues a warning, verses 8 through 11. says, just as Old Testament Israel did not heed the warning that came along with the exhortation to hear God's voice, and just as they did not enter into God's rest, he says, so shall we who do not heed the voice of God in his word today. And the congregation hearing this psalm in David's day would certainly have been aware how God's people rebelled against him in the wilderness and they would have read in Exodus 17 that although God through Moses had led the people out of Egypt, they still hardened their hearts. And it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 uses this same warning for the professing Jewish Christians that he was writing to to encourage them to persevere in the faith. And he does it not because of the fear of genuine believers losing their salvation. That's not what he's saying. Hear me clearly. But he does it to warn of the possibility of there being a person who continually rejects Christ and actually turns out not being a true believer after all. And so this psalm, Psalm 95, lets us know that this hardness of heart was found in the Israelites in the wilderness in Moses' day. They were actually even found in David's day, if this psalm was written during the time of the temple, the first temple, this hardness of heart was found in their day. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us that it was true in the time of the New Testament and his day. And now it's still true for us today that many people continue to harden their hearts against the Lord. 
They reject him. They want nothing to do with him. They don't listen to his voice in the word. They willfully continue down their own paths. They don't want Jesus. That is a reality, and that might be the reality for someone in here this morning. And the Lord says, if you continue down that path, you will not enter my rest. He says, therefore, I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. And that last quote there, you will not enter my rest, is actually a reference to Numbers 14. If you've got your study Bible, you'll see it. But the quote itself is a reference to Numbers 14 where God told the faithless spies along with the others who had continued to be faithless, the spies that were sent out to, to spy out the land and report back to Joshua. He tells them that they will not enter the land of Canaan. He says, you will not enter my rest, you will not enter Canaan. And yet, the writer of Hebrews lets us know that even the rest in Canaan was not the true rest. But that the land of Canaan itself, where God would make his presence known, that he would make his presence especially manifest with his people, was actually just a type of the true rest. For we just said earlier that at the time that Psalm 95 was written, which was probably likely during the first temple, the people had indeed come to rest in the land, right? They were in Canaan. And yet, the people, the congregation gathered together in worship on the Sabbath would still be singing this psalm, speaking of God's rest. So why would the people be singing about still entering into God's rest, hadn't they already received that? Hadn't they already obtained that in the land of Canaan, right? And yet Hebrews 4.8 clarifies saying, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And he said, and so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see, the rest that Hebrews talks about is far greater than we could ever conceive. And the rest that Psalm 95 speaks of is actually far greater than we can conceive. And I think the people of Israel kind of caught on to that as they sang that song over and over and over again. That there was a rest that was still to be had. And they probably were left wondering, when is that rest going to come? When is that rest going to appear? The rest that involves not just settling in a physical piece of land in the Middle East, but a rest that involves peace with God himself and eternal joy in fellowship with him and an entirely new creation. The Bible says a new heavens and a new earth. That rest. And You might be asking this morning, where does this rest come from? Where can this rest be found? Where does this peace come from? Where, does, where can this peace be found? And if that's you, allow me to direct your attention to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the King of Kings, who is the Lord of Lords, who is God in the flesh, the eternal Son, the one who was worshiped and even sang about in this very psalm, Allow me to direct your attention to him and his words in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew eleven twenty eight, where he says, come to me, all who are laboring and are heavy laden. And he says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me. He says, for I am gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. And if you are here today, say you're just visiting and you just popped in and you don't know Jesus. And if your, I would say even if your life shows that you actually might be in rebellion against him, I say to you, do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. For it's a scary thing to continue down your own path and your heart gets further hardened and hardened and the Lord gives you over to yourself And he says, it doesn't have to be. He says, today, if you hear his voice, and if you are here this morning and you're listening to the preached word, you are hearing his voice. And he says, do not harden your hearts, but trust in him alone for your salvation. Come to Jesus, trust in him, and realize actually that none of your works can merit you, that the obedience of the gospel is actually, I don't trust in my own obedience, but I trust in Christ and Christ alone, his person, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection on my behalf, taking hold of him, believing in him for your soul's satisfaction. That is the gospel, and he invites you to partake of that today. He says, do not continue in your stubbornness, in your hardness of heart, but while it is today, Come, hear his voice, listen to him, and you will find rest. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. We praise you because you are a great God and you are greatly to be praised. And then, God, we also want to follow you and be obedient to you as the sheep of your pasture. And so I ask that you would grant it unto us today the gifts of faith and repentance that we might come and trust in you and you alone and find our rest. Lord, we love you and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.